0: Good morning, listeners. I hope that you are having a great time sewing. I have a very special guest that I'm really excited to learn more about, and that is Mike from the Quilt Folk Magazine. Hello, Mike. Hey, good morning. Good morning. Um, I guess, first of all, I always like to kind of start out with, um, how did you get into this business? Were you always kind of a creative kid did you grow up in a creative family um how because I I mean making a magazine is you know a lot like sewing you put different pieces together and you have a product that is in the end so um tell us a little bit about yourself
1: sure um well my family was always creative um there wasn't a quilter in the family um which I think usually surprises people yeah um but I would say we were just creative in different ways um, you know I I, I love to draw and um, we also lived on a 10 acre berry farm as a kid and so I would say a lot of my creative energy was just focused on kind of make believe and, and going out on a farm and doing interesting things with my brother um, it wasn't channeled into anything in particular as I got older um music uh, quite a lot um but uh, but nothing nothing particular that grabbed me at a young age um I always kind of like to just dabble in a little bit of everything um and it, and then once I got to be I don't know you know six or seven or so um, I became kind of a, a sports kid I was playing pretty much sports you know all year round and that took up a lot of my a lot of my
0: time yes hug your mom next time you see her that is a lot of time (laughs) yeah as a as a parent yes it is a lot
1: yeah so we did a lot a lot of sports Uh, like i said you know i grew up on a farm I, i was working on the farm early um and then actually writing um in school is always something that, and speaking of my mom, it's something we connected about. Um, she was always, always had a way with words. She used to tell me when I was a young kid that um, it was very important that you used the right word when writing, that every word had its own sort of, um, you know, very particular meaning and that they were very powerful. And so I would get assignments in school and bring them home and go over them with my mom. And it's something that we connected on, and it's something I was always drawn drawn towards. In fact, um, I didn't remember this until recently, um, but I had made a list of things I wanted to do. Like when I was a young kid, I had made a list of potential you know, jobs or things I wanted to do, and uh, one of them was to write a children's book, which I've done, and another one of them was to make a magazine.
0: No which way! That's um, awesome. And I
1: had. And I had no recollection of that until just recently, but I think it was primarily from that sort of interest in writing at a young age.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that I have two kids. One is a natural writer. The other one has to work at it. But I agree if it's something that at a young age you do see that those words have such power to them, I think it does make you a different student no matter what.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So, go ahead. I'm always curious too to know, like, for me, I think I was I was read to a lot when I was a kid, and um, I have a daughter now myself. She's uh, 14 months old, and you know we we read books every night. And one of the things I always like to ask writers is like, what when when they're writing, uh, do they, you know, what's the voice that they hear? reading those words back to them, or at least for me, mm-hmm. um, as I'm writing, I'm always kind of hearing it back to me and I have a couple of key voices that I can kind of hear like the way it flows and the way it goes. And, and so for me, I think uh, being read to a lot as a child helped. Um, ironically though, I wasn't actually much of a reader. Um, when I was in school, I had a very hard time um, just focusing on finishing books. And so even now, as an adult, i spend I, I read a lot, um, but most of it, most of it is audio books, yep. um, and it's almost all nonfiction. I just have a really hard time getting into fiction and, and reading as a hobby, although um, I love to write, which I feel like is kind of kind of odd. I feel like usually those things go together.
0: yeah, I have a book that I'll send you, my aunt just wrote. It is one of the best books I've ever written. I mean, that I've ever read, it is actually, I helped her edit it, but, um, oh, cool. oh yeah, I'll mail you a copy and it's fiction and you're going to go, no way, I don't like this. And it is, it just draws you in. It's so good. Yeah. Um, so how, like, where did, did it, that kind of go through college in high school? Did you keep writing?
1: So, yeah, I did actually, I kept writing in high in high school, um, and, Um, I would, I would never have called it like a passion at that point. I think it was just something I I enjoyed. And when when an assignment came up, I generally liked those assignments and would do pretty well. Um, but getting back to the sports, I mean, by the time I got into high school, um, I did, I went to a, um, a private high school. It was kind of a college preparatory school. I did really well there. Um, you know, enjoyed most all the subjects. Um, but I was also really into baseball, um, and at that point I'd, I'd been doing pretty well as a, as a youth player. Um, and so I had the opportunity when I was 18 to actually get drafted in the uh, major league amateur draft. Wow. And so actually the week that I took my last final exam in high school, the day, actually I should say, um, I also got drafted and a week later I was off playing professional baseball. That's um, crazy. At age 18. Yeah, and so I had I had signed to play um, college baseball, and I was actually really looking forward to college, um, just because I've always I've always liked to learn. I've always been very curious, um, but baseball was a was a passion since I was so young. I mean, I I had sort of a one track mind, a, a very clear vision of what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and that was to play baseball. So when that opportunity came up, it was kind of a no brainer, and I jumped I jumped in completely. Um, and played from age 18 to 23 traveling around the United States um, mostly on the East coast. I'm kind of working my way up through the minor league system.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, and then it wasn't until that career came to an end. Um, I ultimately decided it just wasn't, wasn't my path any longer. It was very tough to, to think about having a family and starting a life. Um, and, so at some point I just said, okay, I've given it five years and things have kind of, you know, they've sort of plateaued and it was, I was ready for what was next. Yeah. And so it wasn't actually till I came home from that experience that I got to kind of open myself back up and say, okay, what, you know, what am I interested in and what's the rest of my life going to look like? And that's kind of when I got into entrepreneurship and, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, the quilting quilting industry, you know, everything that I'm doing, doing now.
0: So where is home?
1: Well, home when I was a kid was, was Eugene, Oregon.
0: Oh, wow. And, uh,
1: yeah. And then actually, uh, I met my wife, um, and we moved up to Portland a few years ago, just a couple hours away. And we actually just bought, bought a home, uh, just outside Portland a couple months ago. So we're up here with our, my wife and I and our daughter, Cora.
0: Oh, wow. Congratulations on the new house. Yeah,
1: um,
0: Okay, but you left out a big part. How did... I mean, if you didn't have any quilters, how did this become the one thing that you, you started writing about?
1: Yeah. Well, um, so when I came home, I, like I said, I got into entrepreneurship, and I had done a lot of different things um, in business. I mean, everything from... I think I'm pretty much sold about everything that you can sell, light bulbs and T-shirts <laughs> and astrological calendars and all kinds of things. When I was when I was younger, I was just trying to understand the business world and um, I enjoyed it. I actually liked sales. I like talking to people. But more than anything, I, I really liked building things and creating things and feeling like you could have an idea and bring it to life. And so I started kind of surrounding myself with people who I felt like were doing that in various fields. It, it almost didn't matter what it what it was about. It was just about creating value and feeling like you could make things happen. And I met a few pretty influential people when I when I came home. Um, and and one of those people turned out to be a business partner for a while. Um, and we uh, started the company Stella Lighting, which um, I don't know if you're familiar, but was yep. uh, yeah, this was maybe oh, I can't remember the year, maybe two thousand ten. Um and at that time uh so so Stella is an LED mm-hmm. table lamp that that turns out quilters and sewers really enjoyed. And so um it, it was it was the appreciation of the light from quilters that really got us into that industry. We began selling the light there and I was going to quilt markets and traveling around the country talking to quilt shop owners um, in that business kind of as an entrepreneur. And it was through that experience of just meeting people and hearing their stories um, and developing an appreciation for uh, the creativity that comes from this community that ultimately has kept me here, you know, well past my experience with Stella. I mean, since, since those days in 2010, uh, I left that company a few years later. I then uh, self-published three children's quilting books um, that we've sold, I think about forty or fifty thousand copies of those books. Wow, um, those children's books. and then um, th- uh, and those were all kind of geared towards um, helping parents and grandparents who were interested in quilting connect with with young kids and kind of share their their hobby. So um, yeah, went from Stella to, to the children's book publishing, um, and then a lot of quilt shops and quilters were asking for fabric and patterns to go along with the, the books, and so we ended up. Um, I found out how to, to work with manufacturers and we actually developed our own fabric collection that we um, that we did ourselves, and we started printing tens and tens of thousands of yards of fabric and uh, selling them all across the country and. <clears throat> And again, I was going to markets and going to shows and, and meeting quilters. And the whole time I was listening to their stories, and I think the writer and the storyteller within me was thinking, there's some really interesting things happening here yeah. um, that, none of my, that none of my friends knew about, but, but, you know, was kind of outside of my normal day-to-day life. And um, so the idea to collect these stories and to put them in something beautiful <clears throat> and to share them. Uh, was the sort of the kernel of the idea that led to Quilt folk. Um, it was just that idea that that everybody had an interesting story that I was meeting mm-hmm. and that if we could you know if we could if we could share those that people could find inspiration in them, maybe in an unexpected way. It didn't have to just be inspiration from a pattern or even just from a picture of a quilt. It could just be the inspiration of of somebody who maybe had, you know, a life story that resonated with you or uh, whatnot. So anyways, we started collecting these stories um, actually while I was still doing the children's book printing. Um, And ultimately, once those stories started to build, I said, okay, we need to do something with these. And that's kind of the genesis for our first issue of Quilfub.
0: And what was the children's book series? I, I know I saw it on your newsletter, but I don't remember the name
1: yeah it, it was the company was called bambini book club yes and um and yeah the first the first book was gabby quilts for friends and then there was um the second book was uh gabby's winter jammies so it wasn't quite quilting although she ended up making a quilt from old pajamas uh, and then the third one was she uh she gets a baby brother so they make a baby quilt for her brother and uh each of the books came with patterns and like i said ultimately fabrics and
0: all those kind of things. So. That is so neat. And, I mean, <clears throat> that's why I started the podcast. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here shaking my head. You can't see me. And I'm going, yeah, exactly. When I got into this industry, gosh, it was, a l- well, my daughter's 12. So when she was a baby, um, same thing. There were only blogs then and no social media. And the same Mm -hmm. thing, I was like, you know, I mean, this Anna Maria Horner person is really cool. Mm -hmm. And I see her name on this fabric, but how did she get there? Like, how do you go from A to B? And I knew she had kids from reading her blog. And, you know, it was just one of those things that there's a story, but I don't really know it. And it was not really, you know, you couldn't hear somebody's voice on a blog. And I I just really wanted to hear that and connect in a different way. And I feel like that is exactly what you're trying to do with quilt folk and you're doing such a phenomenal job of it not being about the perfection, the, um, you know, the, the right way, the wrong way of quilting. It's more of the stories of the quilters and, you know, what it brings to their life to be a quilter.
1: Well, thank you. I mean, I'm glad that that you enjoy it. I think, um, yeah, I mean you're exactly right. And actually, you mentioned Ana Maria. I mean, she's she's one of you know one of my favorite people that I've met in this experience. We we traveled to see her for issue four, mm-hmm. and she, she had some great quotes, and I love her story. And we've had an opportunity to work together a couple times over the last few years. But but yeah, it's it's people like her, and then it's people like um, Minnie Lee Deakins, who lives an hour away from from Ana Maria, who when we met her was you know. 94 years old, and mostly been entering her miniature quilts in local, state, and county fairs, um, you know, for for, 60, 70 years. And nobody knows who Minnie is, but she's an incredible woman. And um, I actually just, I still hear from Minnie. I just got an email from from them the other day. And I don't know, the the, the whole idea for me was always that there, there are names that you know And there are stories that you want to, that you want to dive into. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, you know, really this idea that everybody does have something interesting to say and really that, um, what's more interesting is, is asking the right questions to uncover, you know, what that person's sort of insight into life is because everybody has a unique experience and, uh, something to add to the conversation, whether it's as a quilt or as a human being. Um, And again, it really, for me, has been, you know, how great can we become at asking really interesting questions to help get that out? And that's probably been the most challenging and the most rewarding part about Quilt Folk. I mean, for the first six issues, I went to every interview that we ever did. I mean, and we we had 15 feature stories about every issue. Um, so that was a lot of interviews and a lot of time for me to be able to sit down with quilters and go through that process. And I think just um, in life, uh, we're pretty, we're pretty interested in getting answers. And I think that's actually maybe the more interesting thing is how how great of it can be kind of asking good questions. Yep. Um, and so the ability to hone that sort of craft and then being able to, provide the answers to to a community of readers who, you know, like me, enjoyed those stories. It's been just really a phenomenal experience, and um, I just really enjoyed every second of it.
0: Yeah, and it's definitely a community that, um, I, I think it's a really humble community. No one is really out there tooting their horn really loud saying, I'm the best, I'm the best. I think it is a community of... Let's all try and help one another, and I think that is the really special thing about the the sewing and quilting industry and as a whole um I'm like you, I am a talker, <laughs> I talk to people in the store i you know just conversations. I'm a curious person, and I feel like you know oftentimes you're you're talking about you know someone that's ninety four she is one of these people that that was her life communication and and having those conversations with somebody and and talking about her life whereas I feel like my generation doesn't do that as much we don't talk about you know the heritage of our family we don't talk about all those kind of things and I think that that is the one thing I like about what you are doing is you're really digging in and and kind of sharing all these different you know I guess every every quilter is different and i i think that every where you go and in the magazine you can kind of see that there are different styles of quilting and and things like that in all the different regions um Mm -hmm. one of my biggest questions is what was the thought process behind doing just you know specific um regions where you go you know like um you know the minnesota episode um,
1: yeah, like the state-by-state state Right, state-by-state. State. Yeah, I'm you're... sorry,
0: it's too early.
1: <laughs> no, it's no problem. Um, it's actually one of the things I forget to mention a lot. I take it for granted that we do that, and then I and then people, you know, it doesn't always get communicated. So thank you for bringing it up. Um, yeah, so every issue, so cool folks at Corley Magazine, and so every issue we go to a new state and we meet quilters and explore the quilting community in that state. And I think there's sort of two – reasons that that came to be I mean one of one of them is just straight a logistical sort of decision um you know we actually take a team of writers and photographers on location for every every story we tell so we never you know we never phone it in we never sort of you know meet somebody at a at a quilt show and take their photo and put them in there um it's everything is done you know, on the ground with a team on location. And we've driven, I mean, in the Iowa issue, I, I drove 10 hours on sheets of ice to, to get to Sandy Gervais. Um, you know, we, we really, you know, so what I mean is that we really go the extra mile to try to get, get on location and get those stories. Um, and so logistically, it's very difficult to have that kind of commitment and, but then also, you know, leave that wide open to, you know, say the whole country or if you were going to break it up in themes, like say you're going to do, you know, a themed issue um, and those stories came from all over, uh, just cost wise and, and yeah. time wise, it'd be very difficult to do that. So going state by state allowed us to um, kind of centralize our team, and our resources and, and go in and do that and actually be able to to make the magazine. Um, but the second part of it for me was always about exactly what you just said. Like every state has their own kind of, you know, subculture, their own, yeah um, you know, whether it's the geography or the climate or the history or the demographic, anything like that, um, makes every state different. And so what we always talked about was let's go find and celebrate and highlight the differences and then always bring them back home to like. What do we all share? You know, what's the what's the common thread? And there's actually the first quote we ever had in a quote book was, a I think it was on page four or something, uh, was a James Joyce quote that says, um, in the particular lies the universal. Mm-hmm. And it's that whole idea that, you know, we can go to any small town in any state in our union. And, uh, you know, and if we can really understand that small community, it will shed light on something happening on a larger scale that we can all connect to. And so that sort of, um, I don't know, that uh, that concept of highlighting differences and similarities and and whatnot is something that resonated with me and it's so far led to some interesting magazines.
0: I, and I think, you know, as someone who, does a lot of phone interviews. I do think when you talk to people in person, you have that body language, you kind of have that, you know, where you're seeing things in person, you're connecting with someone in an energy that is different than when you're doing it on the phone. So I could totally understand why. And you can see that in the magazine. It's so personal. You know what I mean? It's, it's so deep. And I think that, that deep and personal is is so special to read right it's so special to turn those pages that are so incredibly the right weight <laughs> in your magazine um so i mean i think that that is where you're going to get a different story sometimes and i think that you would because people's nerves go down, right? When you're sitting in front of them and you're having that conversation, that nervousness ceases a little bit and you can kind of get someone to come out of their shell a little bit more. And I do really feel like it it totally makes a difference. Now, when you're saying I have a team, like what is a Mm -hmm. team? How many people are traveling with you?
1: Usually... It's usually seven or eight. Wow! Um, so, yeah. So the um, it was smaller when we started. Actually, in issue one, there was only two of us. And um, <laughs> so, the magazine for people who haven't seen it, it's uh, anywhere from 164 to 180 pages every issue. And <clears throat> um, like I said, about 15 feature stories. And so, for issue one, there were two of us. And uh, so we actually didn't put bylines on all of the articles because I, I didn't I didn't want people to realize that there was only two people writing. <laughs> it, was like, it was very small, um, but it has grown since. And uh, so we actually uh, uh, hired Mary Fawns to be uh, actually initially a writer on issue four. And then she um, became our editor in chief <clears throat> shortly thereafter in issue seven. Um, so she's our editor in chief now. Um, and then we've built out a a crew of just incredible writers. Um, you know, Meg Cox is somebody who's with us every issue now. Um, an upcoming issue 14 that's coming out next month. Uh, Bill Volkening uh, was a contributing writer. Um, but we've just had, uh, you know, great writers and photographers for every issue. And it, it always kind of changes a little bit. Um, yeah about eight people going every trip and then we've got the support crew back you know in the warehouse that's shipping and answering phone calls and all those kinds of things
0: that is amazing i love mary
1: yeah she's great
0: she is a great yeah. great person she's a great writer too
1: great writer and a very talented um editor-in-chief i really think that and we talk i mean i tell her she i think she was really born to to make a magazine like this she just all of her life experience and her skill sets have I think aligned and there's just there's just very few people I meet that care this deeply and passionately and enthusiastically about the quilting community I mean she's just one of those people who it just comes out of her and so for her to be able to work on our magazine it's uh you know we're very fortunate and love having her
0: yeah I think she has a unique perspective too to grow up when quilting was totally different and then to see it evolve Um, she has such a unique perspective in that way that so many of us found this you know I think the common theme when I talk to people is I started when I had a kid Um, Mm -hmm. you know I started sewing I needed something for myself and that is a very common thing but you know, she didn't, she actually grew up as that kid, you know, like it's really neat to, to have somebody in our industry that's seen that whole perspective of the industry. I think it is a great voice to have.
1: Well, and I think like, you know, like a lot of times when kids do that, I, you know, and I don't want to speak for Mary, but I think, you know, she, she kind of went away for a while and, you know, I mean, she sort of had a very unique journey, but it is cool to see somebody who's uh, you know, who's who's been in it um and it's a great match because you know i have not been in it forever and i actually purposely you know i purposely tried not to to get too deep into the quote unquote quote industry um just because i feel like one of my jobs has been to think outside the box and to do that I think you need to kind of have one foot in the box but there needs to always be one foot out and you need to kind of have that clarity and so that's a but that is a um, it's a luxury to be able to run to run a business but to be able to still have that one foot where you're kind of out there being able to think creatively um and I can I can only do that because I have people like Mary who are who are helping me run the day-to-day um and it doesn't doesn't mean that I'm one foot out like I'm not paying attention it just means that um the quilt industry has been you know kind of established for some time and when you I don't know when you're when you're trying to do something new sometimes a little bit of money to take can go a long ways and uh, so I try to purposely build that into my my routine I guess if that makes any sense
0: Totally makes sense. Totally makes sense. Well, I, I think my, my next question would be, um, how do you decide, you know, what is the process to who is going to be in the magazine? Like, all right, let's just say it's Florida where I live. So you know that you're coming to Florida and I know you do this, you know, definitely months and months out. Right. So, who like what? Is, okay, where you say as Mike? All right, Florida is the next person. How do you put who's going and and who's going to be in there and what's photographed? Like, what is the process like?
1: Well, it's changed over time. I mean, I think it's it's probably. I mean, the one thing it's important to know is that we still for an entire state we still only have about 15 feature stories right so it's very very difficult is the short answer
0: yeah
1: to, <laughs> uh, um and i think it's bec- it's become more difficult uh only because more people know who we are now and so you really feel a lot of pressure to to get it right um and we get a lot of submissions, a lot of people sending ideas, which we love and we we file those all and we go through them every time we're about to go to the state and and so we do count a lot on those submissions um but a lot of it now is we we have what we call pitch meetings, and we invite everybody from our company you know uh myself to um the people who you know doing customer service and shipping and the writers and uh, the photographers and everybody kind of has an opportunity to do research on a state and to bring creative story ideas. And we get on a giant video conference and everybody talks about their ideas and and brings them up. And we talk about why they were, you know, why we found them fascinating. And we just get a large pool of potential story leads. And then from there, it's just a very difficult process of trying to, trying to pare them down. And, you know, sometimes it, uh, Some people, you know, they're not available at certain times. And so sometimes that paying down happens for you. But generally speaking, it's just a really difficult process of uh, research and talking to people and getting leads and then, uh, you know, figuring out what makes a good mix for the magazine. I mean, that's the other part of it, right, is that um, you try to think in terms of a a whole year. I mean, we, we get a lot of times, you know, we get comments about an issue like maybe this one was you know more modern or this one was more traditional or this one you know have these kinds of stories um for me I always look at it in like a like a four issue kind of a situation we we try to have a good mix and a match of stories over the course of of a subscription um
0: that's a good idea
1: so you know so one issue may not be you know your favorite, but maybe the next one is, and it has to be like that to some degree because we just have a very diverse readership, And, um, and so we try to represent that in the magazine the best we can.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I would think that would be an incredibly hard job because I mean, you really do get some fascinating people. Um, you know, and, and I know this, (laughs) not everyone is on social media. Um, not yeah. everyone has a blog. I mean, some people are just hanging out sewing, you know, and in, in, in their quiet little space. But I feel yeah. like you do a really good job of finding those quiet people that don't usually have that spotlight and really shining it on them for a very good reason. They deserve it. Um, but well, I, and that's, and you know,
1: when I talk about sort of being a little bit naive to the industry that helped early on, because I think Sometimes when you, if you say a state, you know, um, and if you were to ask somebody, well, where do we need to go in, you know, the state, there's sort of like the top, you know, people, people have names and they have shows and they have shops and there's things that people will list um, as sort of staples of that area. And it's really tough because you you do want to tell those, right? right? Because they are definitely part of that state's quilting community. But it would be so easy to make the magazine all about that right and so for us it's it's also about doing that extra digging and again, part of that is when I started, I didn't really know like what what I was missing or wasn't missing. it was for me just about this is a really interesting person yeah. and that and that was the primary criteria and I think we try to keep keep you know keep that today. I still think that's the the number one thing you know what who's interesting what's interesting what you know what do we feel like our readers can connect to and maybe in in an unexpected way um and I think that still runs you know true for the magazine so
0: yeah definitely um what has been one of the most interesting things for you um you know traveling to so many places and meeting so many people what has been something that um you know, has really stuck out to you and it could be anything. It could be, you know, lessons that you learned or how to travel better. I mean, anything, what has been one thing in this journey that has really stuck out to you?
1: I think, well, we talked about it a little bit earlier and maybe I can add to that, but you know, you were talking about like the ability to get comfortable with somebody and, you know, even like for this interview, I still get nervous every time I, I, do something like this so you know it, t- it takes me a while to warm up when we're first talking and i feel like that's true for for most people you yeah. know, no matter who you are so for like when we when we do interviews um i i kind of have this belief that the magic of an interview always happens in the third hour of being <laughs> yeah <somebody. laughs> yeah
0: um,
1: and that sounds like a lot of time but you know usually when we're traveling we're spending a whole afternoon you know, we only schedule a few a few stories per day Um, but I don't know. It's just, it's something I've universally found to be true, which is just that even if you have really great rapport with somebody, and even if you think you're being really open and they're being open and there's just great conversation like we're having, um, all those things can be true, but still, I think it's not until it's like that third hour where people will tell you something that just totally knocks you off your feet. I mean, something you weren't expecting. Yeah, And I think it's part of the reason that, you know, long form content in general, whether it's, you know, long, long form podcasts. I mean, I think that's why podcasts are great. Um, But, you know, I think that's, I think that's what we've been kind of missing a little bit in Mm -hmm. our um, content. And it's starting to come back a little bit more, but that's just something that, again, no matter where you go and who you're talking to, it just seems to be a rule that I've found. And maybe going back to, the idea of asking questions. I don't know that it's even just that the person you're interviewing is becoming more comfortable, but I think it's just you as the interviewer gets, you know, you understand what questions to ask because you get to know that person a little deeper. Um, so that's, that's one thing. But I think the second thing I would just say is I love, I love being in small towns and, uh, it just now that I'm not traveling, um, for every issue, it's it's the thing i've missed the most is just i i love sort of sh- you know showing up not ha- not really knowing anything about this place and just kind of exploring and yeah. i think you know we uh we always have tried to leave in the magazine this concept of like Haiti and that not everything need to be needed to be completely planned out and that's scary when you have a crew of seven or eight people because everyone wants to know where are you staying? Where are you eating? what do you, you know what are you doing? All these things? But to the degree that you can build in I think room to just sort of let life happen and you know let experiences come to you it's It's pretty fun and it makes for trips that are very memorable and I think uh, it's made the magazine more interesting just by leading ourselves open to those experiences
0: yes, I am totally totally right there with you. I mean those you know it's it's with anything if you leave that opportunity to explore and to put yourself out there you never know what's going to happen maybe nothing happens but you never know that you know what what it might turn into and that's a definitely a fun part about it um i'm listening to you talk and i'm thinking so <laughs> your daughter is 15 months old so that means you were traveling the whole time <laughs> that your wife was pregnant that is
1: well actually- well let me think about that so a little bit while she was pregnant but but one of the i mean one of one of the very fortunate things about my work now is that um you know we i i i don't have the same travel schedule that I did when we started the magazine gotcha. and um it's allowed me to to be home and um and we have a really great i mean i think being with my with my daughter and with my wife in these early years is something that's really important to me. I mean, I'm a, I am a, um, stereotypical entrepreneur, you know, in terms of, uh, I, I enjoy my work and I like working, you know, from sun up, sundown to a degree, but there's also, you know, I, I, I stopped playing baseball, which was the love of my life primarily because I wanted a family. And so the fact that now I'm very blessed to have, you know a wonderful supportive wife and a beautiful daughter you know the ability to be able to spend time with them and to raise our daughter together and to be very involved is is really the greatest
0: oh yeah uh,
1: blessing of this of this career i mean it's been really wonderful so
0: Yep. buckle up, <laughs> enjoy that fifteen months
1: <laughs> yeah she's already she's gonna uh it's fun. Is her name oh she's, she's very energetic so Yep.
0: It is a lot of fun um, But it does get really fun when They they rolled their eyes at you And <laughs> you're just like Oh <laughs> my goodness um, yeah. Well I, um, I I just really love that You are Just I, I feel like It's almost quilt focus Almost a book of short stories It is that That book you know, I, I just feel like it's a lost art, right? I go in the bookstore and it's almost empty, and I'm thinking, this is the place that I want to be. This is where I want to hang out. I want to flip the pages. I want to read and and feel that. And I have a really really hard time reading yeah. stuff on you know the Kindle or whatever. I really feel like you're taking something that we're losing in this society, which is that personalized story that is not on Instagram, but really a story that needs to be told. Um, Where do you see this going? Where do you, I mean, of course you're going to run out of States at some point. Um, You know, where, where do you see quilt folk in the future?
1: Well, you mentioned feeling personal and I think a lot of that is the fact that it's print yeah I mean I think every medium whether it's a podcast or a magazine or a blog every every one of them offers something
0: something for
1: the creator and also for the person who's consuming that so for me print print is very personal and it's something that you do often when you have that moment that's for you or it's the end of the day and the kids are down and you you know, you get in your chair and you have a cup of tea and you're able to sit down and really dive into something. So, um, I do think that it's not going to be easy for print. I don't think it's, you know, it's not been easy for us. It probably will not be easy for us just in terms of, um, you know, um, things change you know and and the people's perception of print i think you know our audience gets it but there's a lot of people who who haven't fully really understood they didn't grow up in that time where it was a necessity right um, you know it used to be that was the primary way you got information it was the only way that you got information and magazines were i mean if you think about what magazines were 50 60 years ago even and the kind of influence they had much different than it is today. Um, and print magazines are closing, you know, left and right. We're fortunate that Quill Folk is growing. And so I think one of our, you know, something we're trying to do is to kind of reignite the passion of print and to say, Hey, this is something that, you know, yes, society's moving forward. Yes. Technology's advancing, but you can't throw, you don't want to get rid of this. This is, you know, this, this brings something unique, um, and that's a, you know, that's a fight that we're fighting in some ways, just as a, you said, a, you know, via our form factor. Um, but we've been fortunate, like I said, as other magazines are closing, you know, we're growing and um, people are, I hope, finding that it's something, you know, experience they can't get anywhere else. And yeah. so for for me and Quilt Folk, it's just about how do we build on that? And how do we just kind of shepherd shepherd that actually? Because um it's there's not there's not a lot of people I think doing it doing it in that way right yeah. now. Yeah. You know?
0: Oh, I just had a question. It was like right there on the oh. <laughs> um, my
1: fault, Actually, think. I think I talked over you. No, so.
0: it's okay. I totally get why. Um w- you know, you're, you're saying that and I'm thinking they, you know, there are print magazines that's closing, yours is not, and yours does not have advertisements. So I think that's important to stress here is, um, you know, a lot of people look at the price tag. I think the price tag is worth it because you do not have, you don't have a magazine where half of it is ads. And that right. is just where magazines are going. And I totally get it. You know, from a business perspective, I get why they're doing that. But what made you decide to not go that way?
1: Well, I think. Because
0: um, that's a hard one. I mean, you could get a lot of money from from advertisements.
1: Yeah. Yes, you can. Um, I think for me, it was not ever uh, really a consideration um, in the sense of you know, it's very tough to serve two masters and the idea of a magazine that serves its readers, but also the best interest of advertisers, I think can sometimes, doesn't always have to be like this, but it can sometimes be a conflict. At least at, at times you end up making editorial decisions or doing certain things that maybe aren't, you know, they're not just for readers, they're for some other reason. And so for me, it was always like, you know we didn't and again we didn't set out to make an, an expensive magazine either. know we, we set out to make something that was beautiful um that people could be proud of and uh was a keepsake you know something that kind of a coffee table quarterly is what we called it or keepsake quarterly you know something that had weight to it that really doubled and tripled down on that concept of the tangible uh, value of a print magazine and you know, for us it was like, what's the best way we can do that? Well, it's to use this uncoated paper stock and you know, to do this and to do that and and advertisements for me were just not part of that vision. And again, it's just made it so simple because we really have one you know, we have we have well, two people, I'd say we, we have to make ourselves happy. We have to feel great about the content we put out, but really it's are we connecting with readers and that is that's the ultimate litmus test of whether or not we deserve to exist as a magazine is, are our readers finding this valuable? And I really am comfortable with that sort of relationship. Um, You know, and again, I never have to say, well, you know, are we going to be able to sell advertising this this issue or whatever? Um, So for us, it's just been a very clear, clear decision. And I just, It's hard. It's not for everybody. I definitely, when people, you know, for magazines that do, I understand why I totally get it. Um,
0: it's just a decision you have to make and that was ours. Yeah. And as an, as an entrepreneur, it takes a big part of the headaches out. You know what you, like you said, you're not making anybody else happy but yourself and you know, your readers to make sure that they're okay. And, um, I think it comes through in the magazine in a huge way I think that you can tell that when you pick up this magazine it is a keepsake and if I can say to the listeners if you um are a subscriber and you're a minimalist like my friend January and you don't want to keep anything donate these to the schools I mean can you imagine a kid picking up quilt folk and reading a story and going oh my gosh you know I mean you never know Um, donate them to the library so other people can read them and these stories can be shared. But I really feel like your thoughtfulness shows in that magazine in every way from the moment that you, you know, see the cover to the last page and it's really special what you're doing in this industry. And I love that you, you find those diamonds in the rough. I love that.
1: Thank you. Well, we, we, um, We have, like I said, we've enjoyed our our 14th issue uh, comes out on April 1st and it's, um, I don't take anything for granted, you know, as an entrepreneur and uh, to think about where we started and the fact that, you know, we still have challenges, you know, awareness is still our number one challenge as a, as a, well, I still consider a young company, um, so that, it's still always tough, but the fact that we're here and we're being able to put the magazine out and people are reading it and joining it is truly a blessing. And we don't take it for granted. And, um, you know, I love the idea that you had about, you know, donating them um, when you're through. I think um, I think that's wonderful. And, you know, yeah, hopefully we can be. a. I don't know, you know, with Quilt cool Talk, we, we're hoping that we can inspire in one way, shape or form more people to join our community And uh, hopefully the magazine will help do that. So,
0: And these stories are definitely the stories, you know, that might get that person um, to get into something like this, whether it be for a business or for a hobby. Um, You know, I'm always looking at my kids. Actually, my 12-year-old keeps saying, Mom, they don't teach us anything that has to do with life skills in school. And I'm like, well, you're learning how to read and do math, and that's definitely a life skill. But... I do feel like they're inundated so much with information and what you can do and what you can be that sometimes it just gets missed, you know? These kind of stories in this industry gets missed a lot, and there are a lot of talented kids. I mean, think of all the kids that are artists out there that could be amazing, you know, graffiti quilters um, or whatever. I just think that it's an industry that is so amazing and it really has the potential to just impact a lot of people and I think your magazine is is the start of that
1: there's a great book um about you mentioned like kids and finding their passion there's books I think I think it's called finding your element um it might be by Ken Robinson but it talks a lot about like about that like you know how many creative people are around us and they're not maybe doing whatever it is that they that they it could do really really well because they just haven't found it yet or whatever and i do worry i mean i think quilting you know i'm extremely optimistic about the future of quilting but we also have to be realistic and say look i mean quilting's something that you do you know it's like a lot of a lot of i mean i'm a baseball i'm a baseball guy right baseball's facing the same kind of thing. I mean, for kids these days, there's a lot of competition for Mm -hmm. what gets their attention and baseball is not like it was in the fifties where every kid collected baseball cards and had them in their, their bike spokes when they rode around and watched every game. I mean, it's just a baseball's in a different place and not all of that, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't just because of a problem with baseball. It's just that the times change and people's attention gets drawn. And I think to a lot of crafts or hobbies or pastimes that are a little bit slower and a little more thoughtful and intentional. You know, those things we have to really fight to keep relevant and in the minds of our of our young people, I think. Um, again, not not because there's necessarily anything wrong. It's just the way things are evolving. And yeah. just like I don't just like I don't take for granted my own business. I don't take for granted the the, the quilting community either. And I again I don't say that to be pessimistic. I just mean that it's up It's up to us to find ways to, to bring people in and to make the future of quilting an exciting one yeah. that's accessible and that people can find uh, joy and value in.
0: Yeah, I totally agree. And you know what? I have to say that the great thing about quilt folk not having advertisements is totally kid-friendly. <laughs> Yeah, you know what I mean? It's like, oh, sometimes you can't let your kids read a magazine because of the advertisement. So I don't know, I just really feel like you go at it from such a whole perspective that it really shines in the magazine and what you're doing. Um, For listeners out there who um, maybe want to reach out to you with an idea, or if they want to subscribe to the magazine, um I have to say that listeners one thing I want you to do is subscribe to the newsletter which I'm subscribed to because you kind of get this back door behind the scenes a little bit um you had your children's books on there the other day uh and you told that story and you know you just have some things you give a little hint and tricks about what your you know the next issue is going to be and what's coming out and um I think that's really great but quilt folk um you can go there and pretty much find everything
1: yeah quiltfolk.com. and we're actually going to be doing a lot more uh in the next few months with that newsletter and the kind of contents that's coming out so stay tuned there but we'd love for you to join us um yeah quiltfolk.com. and if you have a story or you just want to say hi or a concern or anything um you can always email me directly my email is mike at quiltfolk.com. i still I, you know, I read every email that comes in, so you can you can email me directly, or if you want to submit uh, a story to our more general line that our team will see, um, it's just submit at QuillFloat.com. And like I said, we really count on those and enjoy receiving them, so we'd love to hear from you.
0: That is amazing. Well, <clears throat> I cannot say thank you enough for coming on. I love what you're doing. I think it's a very important part of our industry, and I really appreciate the Like I said, the wholeness that you're coming at it with, you're really really treating this industry like a precious industry that I think that it is. And and I can't say thank you enough for that.
1: Well, thank you. It was uh, my pleasure joining you this morning. So thank you for having me.